for being gone. So what I have the pleasure of trying to do um, is trying to tell you what's coming, which to me is incredibly exciting. So you've heard how complicated things can be. And uh, speaking as somebody that's been in the trenches doing this and how difficult it is to manage patients um, on these DAAs, um, it's really a breath of fresh air. I was telling somebody at IDSA that in some ways HIV is getting kind of boring. Um, patients, I mean, to say that somebody that's been doing it for a long time, I mean, patients are doing well. It's, it's good to be boring. But what's exciting in hep C is what's coming. It was kind of exciting to me to think about how things were in the 90s, in the mid-90s when those of us that uh, lived in that era and really had a dramatic change in terms of taking care of patients with HIV. Um, and so I'm equally as excited about what's happening now with hepatitis C um, for a number of reasons. And I'll show you some interesting data, but just to kind of review some of the information that you've had um, this morning. Uh, the standard of care for genotype 1 we've already talked about is a DAA plus PEG and RIBA. Uh, you know they're potent inhibitors of um, uh, NS3 protease. You, we talked about what their SVRs, response-guided therapy. But again, there's concerns. Some of the concerns were just mentioned to you, including the side effects, the resistance, the drug interactions. What about the cirrhosis and the length of therapy, and what about our null responders? So my major theme that I deal with all the time is what do I do with a patient in front of me? Do I wait? Um, do I wait, um, especially my co-infected patients? Um, what about my mono-infected patients? Do I wait? Do I tell them to go ahead knowing what, how difficult some of these therapies are? Do I wait? And we think about what's coming. So in particular, this is just a compilation of what Dr. Naji just said. But in particular, what the difference is with the SVRs that you just went over. In patients that are relapsers, partial responders, and nulls, you can see there's a stepwise decrease in terms of the response rate, in particular if you've got a cirrhotic null responder. So thinking um, also about our current standard of care, and I don't need to tell you about how difficult it is to keep people adherent to PEG and RIBA. We basically have to be cheerleaders um, and continue to talk to them and go through all the anxieties that they go through um, on PEG and RIBA. Uh, we know that in my, in my instance, the ribovirin is sometimes worse, a worse player in terms of the anemia and the way that it makes people feel. And it's a complex regimen. It makes me think of the old Crixivan regimens that we used to have, or Nelfinivir regimens, or having patients taking things three times a day. Um, the other thing is that we don't have as much data in terms of patients with um, uh, organ transplant, end-stage liver disease. What about our renal failure patients? What about our patients with a creatinine of two to four? Um, in the last couple of weeks, I have a lot of patients that have been referred to me with glomerulonephritis. So I've got, to, I've got to treat their hep C because of their glomerulonephritis, and how do I monitor their ribovirin? Um, it gets increasingly difficult in terms of doing that. What about pediatrics? What about our patients that are just in, uh, intolerant to interferon? There are some patients um, that are very intolerant that don't like it all. They get a single dose and they say, no more. Don't, don't hit me with that again. So um, the other thing that we think about is what about the treatment emergent substitutions? And those of us that are ID providers 
uh, remember the early days of HIV where we, ha we had these huge lists of uh, uh, things we had to memorize in terms of the mutations um, and getting all the mutations correct. Uh, now we have a whole list of different mutations that we deal with in terms of the uh, telaprevir and bosepravir. Um, that may not be as relevant here um, in terms of HCV that it is with um, uh, HIV, but a couple of things have um, developed. Well, number one is that there are some factors that are associated with emergent resistance. That is prior non-response or a poor response to therapy. We talked about the 1A versus 1B whether or not you don't have ribavirin. Ribavirin seems to be protective, at least in these initial regimens we talked about, and those with a high baseline uh, RNA. I don't have subsequent slides. We can continue to discuss this, but what's interesting is patients that have been followed in these registrational trials, what appears to happen is that even if you do with patients that have developed these resistance mutations, they go away. And unlike HIV, where these can be archived and come back later, that after a period of time that you're without the drug, they may not be a problem. But these are the, these are the mutations that have been kind of reported to date, and you see some of the cross-resistance here, especially with the uh, 155, which is um, one, of the, uh, one of the main players. So let's, let's change gears then, and then let, let me tell you a little bit about what's on the horizon. And as we think about what's coming and the investigational agents that are coming, this is kind of a broad category. We look at the interferons, the uh, antiviral agents, uh, therapeutic vaccines. There is a vaccine that's uh, starting some trials now at Hopkins. Um, there's also um, little small molecules that are being looked at to try to augment the host immune response, looking at small uh, molecules. Unfortunately, one of the cyclophilin inhibitors um, the early trials have been um, marked by the occurrence of pancreatitis um, with one of the first cyclophilin inhibitors. But what I'm going to really be talking about is these drugs that um, are important in terms of replication and polyprotein um, uh, processing. And I think you've seen this before in terms of the life cycle of the virus, but this is what we're going to be concentrating on, the polyprotein processing. And remember, there's non-structural proteins and there's structural uh, proteins. And most of the, most of the business that um, we're going to be talking about is really related to the non-structural proteins. So to get down, get down to the point that we're really talking about, what are the agents? and looking at the particular agents that are available. We talked about telaprevir and bisepravir, the protease inhibitors. We have the NS5A um, inhibitors, and we've got the NS5B inhibitors. When we talk about the polymerase inhibitors, there's two main types. There's a nucleoside and non-nuke. Sounds familiar to HIV. Gets a little bit more confusing in terms of the nomenclature, and this, um, just gives you kind of broad strokes of what you need to think about when you're looking at the different classes of drugs. In particular, let's start with the protease inhibitors since that's what we just spent the most time talking about. Generally, they have a low barrier to resistance, they're very efficacious, um, broad genotypic coverage, and we'll talk a little bit more in the next talk about their um, influence with P450. There's second-generation PI inhibitors coming, and I've listed them there, in particular uh, TMC-435 and Deniprovir. 
Um, and then the polymerase inhibitors. You've got nucleosides, nucleotides, and non-nucleosides and nucleotides. Gets kind of confusing. But if you can think about what I've tried to do on these slides so you don't get too lost in the names and the numbers, is that I've tried to put their class next to them. So if you can think about the class specificity, in particular the PI, what's different about the nucleotides versus the non-nucs. Here you see for the nucleosides and tides, which we are very excited about, there's a very high genetic barrier to resistance, mimics the natural substrates of the polymerase, incorporated into the RNA chain, has broad genotypic coverage, which is important for genotypes one, two, three, and four. Some have five and six. Um, these are the main types where we're going to be talking about uh, GS9977 um, uh, or Sofosavir. I don't know which is harder to say uh, for me. Um, and Mericitabine. And then the non-nukes, resistance more frequent um, than the nukes, binds to several different sites. Um, and then there's several um, drugs in development in terms of phase two. The NS, NS5As are a little bit more similar to the protease inhibitors in that they have a low to average barrier of resistance. Mechanism of inhibition is really under study. There's a really exciting drug, uh, datacladosphere, um, that we'll be talking about. And then the cyclophilin inhibitors, which I talked about. Now, again, in drug development, and we remember this from HIV in terms of the drug development, there has already been um, a lot of drugs um, that are being developed. There have some that are already um, found, um, unfortunately, um, we found some problems with. And you may have heard in terms of press a couple of months ago about the, uh, the BMS polymerase inhibitor that was associated with an increased risk of heart failure. Um, and that trial had to be stopped. So some of these, um, again, are um, we're learning as we go in terms of some of these drugs. So I'll show you some of the kind of the more exciting things. And when I was making this slide, I was thinking about, this is kind of similar to what we were thinking about years ago with HIV um, in terms of trying to design the ideal drug. We want it simple. We want straightforward stopping rules. I think we all get kind of confused in terms of the stopping rules. We want a low risk of resistance. We want it to be effective against all different stages of liver disease, our difficult to treat patient populations, our cirrhotics, our null responders. Everybody wants one pill once a day, right? Low pill burden, and of course we're going to have improved adherence. And we want it to be pangenotypic as best we can. Few side effects associated with it, and it to cost a small amount. We're not asking much. <laughs> so, um, Thinking about this, this is kind of really a historic time, right, in the evolution. And those of you that have been following the field, I, I'm saying it's very, it's very exciting. And it's very exciting for us to think about that we actually have a viral disease that we can talk about eradication. But this is kind of our timeline um, that we've been dealing with. So a couple years ago, really a proof of concept that hepatitis C could be suppressed with two direct acting agents without the emergence of resistance. Then we had some exciting trials in uh, 2011 that showed we can cure hepatitis C without interferon. And then more data, which I'll show you some of, demonstration of cure in a very high proportion of patients. 
So basically what's happening is there's these simultaneously development pathways. It's kind of this race to the start. Um, competition is great, and all these companies are, are trying to get their drugs in different phases, and it's kind of an exciting kind of time to watch and, and to see who's, uh, who's going where. Um, but basically, we've got these different development pathways. We've got PEG, RIBA, um, plus a direct acting agent. We've got, you add two direct acting agents to PEG and RIBA, and then truthfully, who really wants PEG and RIBA? Uh, we want an interferon-free regimen, and do we, want a, do we want a regimen where we get rid of ribavirin? I would love it. Um, I, you know, the anemia is horrible. Patients do not like it. Um, and so can I show you some data in terms of that we don't even need interferon? So all this is coming and all of it's quite exciting. So let's first start um, with the DAAs with PEG and RIBA and I'll show you some interesting studies in terms of, and keeping in mind with what the percentage, what the SVR is that we dealt with before in terms of raise the rate, I think we talked about uh, generally increase to 70% and then keep that kind of number in mind as we go when we start looking at some of these newer drugs. So I'm first going to tell you about an exciting drug uh, called Cefosivir, or uh, GS7977, and it's an NS5B inhibitor. This is plus PEG and RIBA. And this was an interesting um, study because it was in genotype 1s, no cirrhotics, um, and we had a large proportion of non-CC patients. Now you'll see the differences, and the, the, a lot of these slides are the same. The first arm here you see in Geno1 was just the, the study drug PEG and RIBA, and then here, this was only for 12 weeks. Um, the second arm of the study was for 24 weeks and included patients with genotype 4 and 6. And then the third arm of the study, we did 12 weeks of therapy followed by monotherapy. And the exciting part of the study is look at these um, virologic response rates. That's what, why everybody's kind of so excited um, in terms of what these next generation of drugs are doing. There was a rapid reduction across all IL-28 genotypes. So regardless of whether you were a CC, a CT, a TT, um, comparable rates in terms of SVR4 between 12 and 24 weeks. There were uh, four relapsers, but there was no signature mutation that kind of developed, and the side effect profile was actually pretty clean. It was basically the side effects that you would see with PEG or RIBA. So then the, the thought is, what can we do? Can we then shorten this duration? We have higher potency drugs. Can we maybe try to um, shorten the duration of therapy? So this is looking at another compound. This is um, TMC-435, which is another, a new protease inhibitor. And this is looking at genotype um, naives with PEG and RIBA. And again, showing the same thing. Looking at the dose here that has been taken forward of a dose of 150, you see, again, what these overall SVR rates are in the 80s. Um, and again, in terms of if you stratify, at least looking at this drug by IL-28B, we see that there's a small um, little drop-off here um, in patients um, that have the uh, uh, CTTT. So when you're trying to compare these drugs, the other thing to look at is you can't lump them all together. That's the other thing. Each of them have nuances, and each of them has different side effects. Some of them may be more effective 
um, again, certain subtypes of genotype 1. That's why you have to examine these trials very carefully. This is another product. This is a, a BMI PI. And this, again, brings home the point with using this PI in combination with PEG-RIBA. There was a dramatic difference here depending on subtype and depending on whether you were CCTT. So again, you have to carefully scrutinize. You can't lump all the protease inhibitors together, which is the main point. If you look, um, again, this, these are not head-to-head -head comparisons, but if you try to line these up in terms of what's currently in terms of phase two um, A and B trials and compare them with the 63 to 73%, they, they, li they line up um, pretty, pretty uh, comparably in terms of this. Some of these drugs have cleaner side effect profiles, as I talked about. They also, again, they have nuances depending on the subtypes um, or the CCTT. What about in our non-responders? So I showed you a couple of studies from the... Um, uh, from the naive. So what about Geno-1s in terms of looking at Simiprovir, which is a PI, and Geno-1 non-responders? Again, this is using PEG and RIBA again. And if you can remember the stratified, um, stratified graph we showed you about the prior relapsers, prior non-responders, and nulls, do you remember it kind of went down like this? So you're seeing the same kind of strata in terms of this drug look, looking at um, these different relapsers, partial responders, and nulls. And if we look at the trials in terms of the efficacy in nulls, I listed for you there the, with the investigational PIs um, with the name of the trial and their phases and the efficacy measures. So there are some that are different than others. Um, these tend to be a little bit higher in terms of the second generation protease inhibitors. Some of the second-generation protease inhibitors also contain ritonavir, and we'll talk about that in a couple of slides, which has implications for um, other agents if, uh, that we're giving that are metabolized through P450. So um, I'm not going to say too much about the HCV, HIV, except for I have one slide and one I uh, just found out that I didn't have a chance to make because of, the, unfortunately, the GI illness in my kids but I'll tell you about. Um, one is the Cefosivir viral response, and this was um, actually presented at ICAC. And this was, you'll see the different agents here, and this is what's so exciting also about um, this drug and co-infection, what's coming, is there didn't seem to be an influence at all um, from these different antiretrovirals uh, anti and its effect, so there doesn't appear to be any drug interactions. Um, also at IDSA, um, was just presented some drug interaction data on simiprovir, which is um, 435, um, which showed that there doesn't appear to be any difference with reltegravir um, and uh, rilpivirine, but there appears to be differences with the PIs and efavirans, unfortunately. So again, it's, they're, they're not going to be in the same category. We're going to have to determine and do these do these drug interaction studies uh, prior to their use um, in co-infection to be able to make sure that they're not going to be, um, have any effects with the antiretrovirals we're using. So let's go to the exciting part, which is what you want to know about the interferon-free regimens and your patients want to know about. So when you're interpreting, when you're interpreting this, um, I would 
I would say that you need to think about um, the outcomes. And when you're looking at some of these new drugs, these are the things we need to think about. And again, looking at this, these drug characteristics and the host, really important to think about these individual drugs. What's the potency? Remember I talked about the different classes of the drugs and whether they had a high barrier, low barrier to resistance, how potent they were. Uh, genetics, pharmacology, we know that 1A is more resistance prone as we talked about than 1B. And we know that the, the PIs and the NS5As are a little bit less forgiving than the polymerase inhibitors. What about the host responsiveness? You've talked this morning about IL-28B and those that have had prior therapy. What about endogenous immunity? And then the virus, the genotype of the virus and the subtype of the virus. So one of the really uh, most exciting studies um, was a study that was um, presented um, last year at ASLB as well as the New England Journal um, study that looked at the ones that are the most difficult to treat. These are the null responders. And you're taking the most difficult um, uh, population and trying to get a response. And what was so exciting from this initial data um, was that in null responders, and it may not seem like much to you, but in terms of the null responder rate, um, in terms of the LOC study, a SVR of 36% um, was pretty remarkable. Um, the, the data um, on using quad therapy in these patients will be presented at the liver meetings in the next couple of weeks. And quad was using um, these two um, together, aspirinavir, which is a PI, and dataclatazivir, which is a, um, an, a, 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 a um, NS, uh, now I'm getting confused. In terms of the, in terms of the nomenclature, and, and NS5A um, with the PEG and RIBA, and you can look at um, these success rates here: 20, uh, SVR24 with a quad 1A of greater than 95%, and an SVR4 of a quad of a 1B, 23 out of 31 patients. Um, then I'm going to show you um, a smattering of different studies looking at a combination of different classes, plus or minus ribavirin, um, a denepravir, which is one of the protease inhibitors with ribavirin, um, and a, um, a um, NS5B plus ribavirin in naive genome 1s. Now here what you see a difference is, and again, you have to look very closely in terms of the differences regarding genotype 1 and B. So now not all these drugs, when combined together, um, may give you the, the high potency rate. So that's what's really important in terms of which drugs are being combined together in which class. What data do we have in cirrhotics? Um, that is a, one of the, one of the main, other main questions we have, and can we say that these drugs are going to respond the same way in cirrhotics? You've seen from previous data from some of the, the first-generation protease inhibitors, it isn't so. And it isn't so with using some of these combinations of drugs as well. These are two BI drugs. One's a protease inhibitor, one's an NS5B, plus or minus RIBA. The bottom line from this study in cirrhotics showing again that subtype matters, IL-28B matters. So there appears to be, with a combination of some of these drugs, still the influence of host and viral factors. 
So in, in a way, um, thinking back to the um, HIV initially, um, the DHHS guidelines when I looked at, remember when you pick something from column A and column B and you, and you combine them together, this is kind of something similar that's, that's happening from all these drugs that we have available. Um, the latest that I, that I was told from clinicaltrials.gov was 39 compounds um, in terms of that, that are in some way um, in clinical trials. So basically what's being done is taking different combinations of drugs, drug A and drug B, plus or minus RIBA for shorter periods of time. And that's the way you kind of need to think about it. So one of the um, very exciting um, drugs is this nucleotide analog um, of NS5B. It's got broad genotypic coverage with a very high barrier of resistance. And I'm going to show you some of this. Um, the atomic data we've already looked at, I'm going to show you some of the electron data. But look at this, uh, look at those SVR rates. Um, it's pretty uh, incredible for a short duration of therapy. Here's the electron data. Um, and it's looking at cefosivir plus riba plus or minus PEG interon. So what, what you basically see here is you have a combination of uh, cefosivir, PEG, and riba for a short period of time. And then you just have, you have combination arms here without any PEG riba. And the data um, is pretty exciting in terms of treatment naive. This is treatment naive genome um, 2.3. Um, looking at uh, PEG and RIBA for eight weeks. Now, the numbers are really small. Um, the, this is looking at Geno1 with uh, cefosivir plus RIBA at 12 weeks with an 88% SVR4. And these are treatment experienced uh, two threes with a combination of cefosivir and ribavirin for 12 weeks with an 80% SVR. Uh, another exciting combination. Um, that's happening, and this is a very complicated study design. It's got many different arms, but it's a combination of an NS5A with an NS5B plus or minus RIBA in um, multiple genotypes for um, multiple periods of time. Now, looking across all these genotypes, what I want you to look at here is the SVR4s. This is for genotype 1A and B. You see this SVR? 100%. Oh, 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 yeah, so the SVR, sorry, I'm, I'm pointing it down here. Yeah, so the SVR, so the SVR of 100%, so that's pretty exciting um, in terms of thinking about, thinking about this combination in genome 1 and 3, 100% um, SVR4. When we're looking here um, at the um, SVR, um, 100%. So we're looking at genome 2 and 3s here. This is end of treatment. This is SVR4. So this is what's coming um, and very exciting in terms of this combination. So the other thing that um, this brings up is whether or not you really need ribavirin in your regimen. And I'm going to go ahead and show you some data later um, regarding uh, not using ribavirin. So this is the quad regimen. This is another exciting regimen looking at NS585, which is NS5A, and an NS3, and an NS5B plus riba. So it's using four drugs together. So a combination of three drugs plus ribavirin, okay? 
And what this basically shows, looking at this dose here in terms of 90 milligrams, is SVR 24, 100%. Now, look at the numbers here. They're very small in terms of the numbers. But I think this is what's getting people so excited, is putting these combinations of drugs together that work at different, um, different parts of the life cycle of the virus, um, and thinking about how best to use them in what duration of therapy and whether or not ribavirin um, is really, we really need ribavirin. So in some of these quad therapies, we see a high SVR rate. Um, I showed you some data in terms of the nulls, um, looking at incredible uh, high SVRs in the nulls with ribavirin. The PEG-RIBA appears to overcome some limitations, especially with some of these drugs looking at 1As. Um, what we should maybe think about this is a backup regimen for interferon-free regimens. So are there people, there's still going to be people that are really hard to treat. Um, and um, it, we're still going to be able to need interferon. There are still going to be um, countries around the world that are not going to be able to um, afford these DAAs, which are going to be really expensive. So we really need to think is, can we have one of these more potent drugs in a, maybe a shorter period of time, maybe a 12-week? And I could probably convince my patients to go on 12 weeks of interferon versus 48 weeks. I don't have to complain as much. They won't have to complain as much. Um, then there's a, another interferon, which is a type 3 interferon, a PEG interferon lambda, which is a kind of very interesting um, study. There's a, it's being looked at now in combination with um, other DAAs, and what's interesting about this is it, in, it affects the, um, it works by a unique receptor on hepatocytes. It doesn't cross-react with um, neurologic uh, tissue and hemopoietic uh, tissue, so it doesn't have the side effects that you would get. The cytopenia is associated with regular, peg, um, with regular interferon alpha. So this is what's happening in the U.S. There's this growing anticipation of interferon-free regimens marked by a number of these studies. In particular, um, this data, which is um, cefosivir plus dataclasivir with or without riba for 24 weeks with 100% uh, SVR. And so watch and wait is becoming much more common. So the question for you is, do I, do I treat? at this point, or do I wait for some of these new drugs kind of that are coming? Um, this is the updated data here, which will be presented by Dr. Sulkowski at the liver meetings, showing the SVR 24 of 1A um, and B, 100%, and genotype 2 and 3 of 100%. Another exciting um, abstract that will be presented at the liver meetings in the next couple of weeks is looking at this Abbott combination of a PI, an NS5A, and an NS5B, plus or minus ribavirin. So this is the overall success rate here. The success rate in naives, 98%, regardless of the subtype. And this is in a non-CC. So this is pretty exciting stuff. Um, so before, when we had to think about stratifying by uh, CC or TT, um, it, you, when we get a combination of drugs that work well together, um, the issue is how best we can do this and whether or not we can get rid of the ribavirin would be great um, in a lot of instances. 
So um, other kind of exciting studies that I just listed for you here, these are a couple of studies that um, will be presented at the upcoming liver meetings that I thought were really interesting. So this is looking at a uh, combination of an NS5A, a PI, and an NS5B for 24 weeks with an SVR, 24 of 94%. The Safosavir plus Riba, either at low or high dose, it really didn't make a difference whether you're using higher, um, low dose for 24 weeks. With, um, one, with a, uh, this is supposed to be SVR12 of 100%. What's interesting about that is all these patients were African-American, um, or 80% African-American had a high CTTT, and 23% had advanced liver disease. To me, that's the most exciting um, uh, abstract that I've seen. I don't know about anybody else, but that's pretty exciting. And then the Zenith study, which is a combination of a uh, polymerase inhibitor, tilaprovir, and ribavirin for 12 weeks. Um, with an SVR12 um, in a 1B patients, five out of five um, responded. Uh, again, very small numbers, and a 1A, four out of six. So this is what people are so excited about and what's coming um, is these really combination compact regimens where we'll be able to achieve eradication in 12 weeks. Uh, there's numerous other trials that I've just listed for you. I'm just not going to go over. Some of these are getting ready to start. Well, the other exciting thing that's happening, what happened in HIV, is this first trial here is a co-formulation pill with Cefosavir and uh, 58885. Abbott is also planning a co-formulation pill um, as well. So we're talking about, in terms of this trial, this is a one pill once a day, plus or minus ribavirin for 12 versus 24 weeks. And as you can see here, what the trend in here is 12 weeks of therapy. So it's co-formulation, working together, different combinations together for a shorter duration of therapy. So um, to end, I can see um, thinking about stratifying. And so the question that it ma mainly comes up to for me is, should I treat this patient that's in front of me right now, or should I wait knowing what's coming? Um, in terms of thinking about some of the things that we used to think about before were the easy to treat, the genotype stratifying by 1A, 1B, the CC, the non-serotics. Some of this may hold for some of the drugs um, as I mentioned, I showed you some of the nuances of some of the drugs, but when you put combinations of high potency together in combinations that make sense and that have shown efficacy, um, we may not have to worry about this as much anymore versus the harder to treat, which is the ones we talked about before. So coming up with combinations of um, A, A plus B plus C, for maybe 12 weeks, and then our harder to treat patients, we, we may need to use more drugs together for a longer duration of time, maybe up to 24 weeks. And then other considerations, side effects, things that we don't find in clinical trials that we find out later, um, some of the unfortunate things that may happen. We don't know much about uh, comorbidities, drug interactions. How about patients with renal failure? I've got a a lot of patients with end-stage kidney disease um, that are kind of being warehoused kind of at this point, and very difficult. And then HIV co-infection, I guess the other part of that as well is thinking about the drug interactions.
So last slide. Um, triple therapy provides significant benefit um, but has limitations of things that we've talked about. Genotype is no, no, no longer the primary determinant of response. We need to think about the stage of the liver disease, in particular with some of the drugs, um, the IL-28 status does matter with some of these drugs. I showed you some of them. The baseline uh, viral load uh, may not matter as much anymore. Race still seems to be an influ uh, a, a influence with some, but not all. Um, we can envision interferon-free regimens as a first-line regimen, um, especially when you combine things together with a very high efficacy and tolerability. So I would say that when the patient comes in front of you, my biggest dilemma is should I treat or should I wait in terms of knowing what's coming. And I think about what the likelihood of response is going to be, what their stage of liver disease is, their prior therapy, um, the problems associated with PEG and RIBA. Did they have previous um, treatment? Are they cirrhotics? Are they in interferon intolerant? And what are the practical issues in terms of insurance, family support, especially with PEG and RIBA and all the, the concerns um, that are associated with the side effects and tolerability? Um, I've got several um, patients right now that I'm trying to manage with uh, glomerulonephritis who have uh, creatinines anywhere from two to four. And so the issue is I need to treat not so much for their liver disease, but for their kidney disease. And so you get into these issues of how best to manage some of the other complications of hep C, the cryoglobulinemia, the kidney disease, um, that may force your hand in terms of treatment sooner than uh, later. Uh, so thanks for your attention. Great, thank you for a tour de force on what's coming. Um, so do we have questions um, for Dr. Wilkowski before we break for lunch? No questions. Did we want to do a summary or are we just going to? Yeah, we'll okay. Start? All right, thank you very much. Before, yeah, so before we break, uh, let's do a summary of what we heard. It's sort of like um, there was an old Alan Sherman song from 1963 where he said Leonard Bernstein told us what we heard. So this is my version of, our version of that. All right, so the first two lectures, uh, uh, John Ward gave us an overview of hepatitis C and its epidemiology, and I think there were th several major points. One, is there somewhere between three and a half to four million people infected in the United States with HCV, and the large majority of them don't know their status those who are more likely to be infected are those born between 1945 and 1965. And with the advent of newer therapies, uh, a lot of these people should be getting tested and then getting referred for care. And that's where we come in. And this will happen hopefully at a time before they experience progressive liver disease and at a time when we can reverse that uh, and reduce morbidity and mortality from hepatitis C. The next talk was uh, from George Shaw, and I think the striking things there is for those of us who've been involved in HIV for many years, the similarities in the pathogenesis in the terms of the quasi-species being present in each, the high rate of turnover, even higher with hepatitis C, the transmitter founder virus that one goes in from sexual transmission, maybe two, 
And then with IV drug use, uh, there's more uh, early transmitted viruses. But nonetheless, uh, the take-home point is that this high level of replication is just quite striking. And what's maybe even more striking is that when you use the direct acting agents, like Kim just talked about, um, this can drop viral load to undetectable levels in 10 to 14 days from several million copies per mil. So that was the first two. I don't know if you want to uh, take a shot at the next sure. one or two, Dietrich, yeah, I guess. Sure. Yeah, no problem. So I, I actually think that the next few um, really got to the clinical management of these patients. Um, Dr. Dietrich discussing the cirrhotic patient um, and trying to make decisions on when to treat, but also how to manage the cytopenias and the other complications that can occur. Um, you know, we, we, we tried to hash out a little bit as well from the registration trials, the ins and outs of baseline predictors, but I think ultimately, as we just saw, many of those may not be relevant moving forward with more um, a potent combinations and therefore trying to use those to make clinical decisions on, on whether to treat and, and whether to wait. And I think most people would argue at this point, if you can wait, you should. Um, but that if you have to make a decision about treating a patient currently, um, you know, there are ways to manage the cytopenias. Um, there are ways to manage the drug-drug interactions. There's, we have knowledge about what's safe and what's not. Um, and just trying to embark on that with, with recognizing um, all of those limitations, but understanding that it can be done safely, um, probably slowly and safely. Um, and, and I think that's probably the, the, a reasonable summary, I guess, and of the clinical part. Stay away from Zumba. That's right. Your spouse when you're here. <laughs> All right. So with that, I think we will close. Um, everyone, uh, thank you so much for your participation so far. It's been great. And um, the hosted lunch, I presume, is just outside the doors.